2 Kings 18. And uh, here we are looking at uh, King Hezekiah. And a big part of me wants to look at his story as a whole. That may be something we can do in the future. But for the sake of time, and I, I think there will be other reasons that will be made evident, um, we'll, we'll just look at chapter 18. Um, so if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Um, I want to read the first eight verses, but we will be covering the entire chapter. The writer of two kings writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, or Hosea, your Bible might say, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, which basically means bronze servant. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast the Lord, did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Whatever, wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory and watchtower to fortified city. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always to open up our hearts and minds and eyes and ears, our mouth and hands and feet. Our entire being is transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Would you be so kind to help us this evening as we look at a story that I'm guilty of uh, overlooking, uh, but is so crucial uh, to our lives and to your word. And may we apply it. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I... Uh, I'll be honest with you, in, in, in nearly, well, nearly 14 years of preaching, I've never wanted to bring um, things in the sanctuary that may uh, light it on fire, but I was this close to doing that today, and you're, you're fortunate that, that, and so you're welcome that I didn't do this. Um, I wanted to do a few experiments, and I'm not a science guy, but I did want to do a, a, a few experiments with you. So I've got a few pictures that sort of give you an idea what it is that, that we could do. Here's the first one. Do you believe it is possible to put an egg, just a regular large egg, and get over at Kroger? Is it possible to get it through a small bottle, through the mouth of that bottle? Now, for those of you who have kids or actually know a thing or two like science, you, you may think, yes, obviously it is. For, for people like me who did not like science growing up, um, I was more of a history and math guy. Science was, was for nerds. Um, and, and so this just blew my mind. Like, I think I knew this, but I never really thought about it. Do you know how to do it? Again, the experiment is up there. All you need to do is, is a match. You put it in the bottle. You put the egg on top of the bottle. And it won't take long. As the match goes out, the egg will be sucked right through the bottle. I don't know if that's how they get ships in there or not, but that is how they get eggs in there. Now, do you know why that works? Right? So if you put the egg on top, of, on top of that bottle, what you have is air pressure coming up and you have air pressure coming down. And they, they meet there in the middle and the egg is just going to rest on it. But, but when you put the match in there and you seal it by putting the egg on top, it creates a vacuum. So now that air pressure has gone out because of carbon dioxide. So you have all this air pressure coming from the outside pushing down. And so it sucks the egg into the bottle. It's amazing, isn't it, that, that a small little flame 
can do so much. And it's amazing that pressure, air pressure, we take for granted and we don't really ever think about can do really incredible things. It can squeeze an egg in there. It is incredible what a little pressure, what a little pressure can achieve or in our lives what it can often destroy. When I was in karate, our, our instructor would remind us frequently that it only takes a few pounds of pressure to break someone's kneecap. Now, hopefully that's not the only thing you learn from church here this evening, right? The point he was trying to make that if you have to defend yourself, an easy option is, for male or females, because it doesn't take much, is the kneecaps. I hesitate to mention that now that we've mentioned business meeting next week. But again, just a little bit of pressure can do a whole lot of damage if you let it. What we have in the story is a king under great pressure. Let's start there with the king in verses 1 to 8, which is what we we just read. We're introduced to Hezekiah here in the story, and he is the new king of Israel. And we're immediately confronted with a few things about him. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these first eight verses. The first thing we see is he is the king, he is the son of King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a bad guy, right? So, so you know that most of the kings of Israel are just bad in general. It's very rare that they're ever good. They start out sort of bad and they end bad. It's, it's just not a good story for them at all. And maybe you've noticed that in your reading. The Judah kings, it's, it's a mixed bag. And Hezekiah's father was one of the bad ones. Can I just give you a summary of his dad to sort of show you uh, um, right here? 2 Kings 16. He did not do this, Ahaz, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the king of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations in Planned Parenthood, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Verily I say unto thee, that is not a good guy. That is not a good guy at all. You don't get more pagan than to murder your own children. You just don't. He is so bad that when he dies, the Israelites or the Judahites here do not bury him in the royal tombs. It is the ultimate act of shame, dishonor. He was a bad, bad guy. Yet despite this lineage, Hezekiah chose the way of righteousness. If only I could think of a good application there. Not only do we see that he was the son of Ahaz, he was a man of righteousness. Again, we, 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 we can look at this in detail, but I really just want to summarize quickly. Notice there in verse 4, he outlined idolatry. He tore down the altars of Asheroth, but he also destroyed the bronze serpent of Moses. It's, it's interesting here that what was once a, a symbol of a remembrance of grace has turned into a relic of idolatry. It's amazing. This just pops up out of nowhere. Not really mentioned much in the Old Testament. You know the story, right? Moses makes the bronze serpent so that those who've been bitten by the, by, by, by the vipers, if they would look at the top of the heel, they would find redemption for their bodies and their souls, right? And so that became a picture of God's grace. But it eventually became a relic of idolatry. And so he has to destroy its. It's amazing, isn't it? Here is something that the, the nation of Israel had held in high honor. But if it, was, if it becomes a source of idolatry, it's better to just destroy it. 
Thirdly, he was blessed by God. And these verses may be worth looking at again. Verse 7, And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. These, of course, are a summary. If you keep reading in 2 Kings, what it is you will find all that God had done through Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a good guy. And so we see this, that a righteous king is blessed by God as well as the nation he leads, and they prosper. That is the basic covenant God had made with his people. We move quickly from the king to the conqueror. Here in verses 9 to 12. Again, I just want to uh, highlight this very quickly. You can pick up there in verse 9. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, so now Hezekiah's been king four years. This is where it gets really confusing in these historical books. Hezekiah's been king four years. It was the seventh year of King Hosea, or Hosea, king of Elah, okay? So, so you got two kings, one in the north, that's Hosea, one in the south, that is Hezekiah. That's all that says. This is where we all get confused, right? This way of writing is, is frustrating for modern hearers, would have been normal back then, because to us, it, it, it interrupts the flow of the narrative, Right. Have you ever read uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the Middle Earth, right? One of the great and yet frustrating things about that is Tolkien uh, didn't have an editor. He, he refused an editor. So what he does is he tells an entire story, and then he'll go back in time and tell that story through a different perspective. So when the fellowship departs, he'll tell the story of Frodo and Sam, and then he'll go back where the fellowship departs. He'll tell the story of Aragorn and, and, and his team, right? And then he'll go back, right? That's sort of a way we would prefer this to be. Tell us the story of Hezekiah, okay? Then go back and tell us the story of Hosea, right? But what, what the Bible does is, is it interweaves these stories, and it's hard for us at times to keep up with the kings and all that, that sort of stuff. But here's what's important. Uh, verse 9, Shalomanser, uh, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Notice here, the mo- main thing is not the years. We're not going to worry about that. Samaria has been destroyed. The capital city of your brothers up north, the northern tribes of Israel, 10 of them, they have been wiped out by the Assyrians. So verse 11, the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gazan, and in the cities of Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So you get here that Samaria is destroyed, and on the border with Israel is Judah. And not just are they on the border, but the direction of the Assyrian tanks is heading towards Hezekiah's kingdom. So we're introduced to the conquering nation of Assyria. And you can sort of see what is happening with Hezekiah here. Now he knows they're a threat, but right now there are nations bordering Judah that they haven't conquered yet. And those nations are going by the wayside. And now that Samaria has fallen, now that Israel has fallen, guess who's next? It's Hezekiah and Judah. And he isn't any stronger than Israel was. What chance does he have to keep Assyria from conquering his kingdom? Well, the real question that the writer has here is is laid out there in verse 12. And that is, will Hezekiah fear the Assyrians? 
Or will he learn, or will, will he, uh, or will he learn from the mistakes of Israelite? Really, what you have in verses nine through twelve was has already been mentioned in the narrative. It's repeated here. It's repeated here so that we, the reader, can ask that question: Will Hezekiah make the same mistakes as Israel? Will he give in to the pressure, or will he resist with faith? Well, that leads to what I want to spend most of our time on. We'll be done here in about three hours, and that is the confrontation. The confrontation, verses 13 to 37. Notice we'll start there, verse 13. In the 14th year, King Hezekiah, so some time has commenced. Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Now, it was Shalamansar. Now it's Sennacherib. You can see why people get easily uh, uh, confused here. Well, um, Shalamansar has died. His son, uh, Sennacherib, is now king of Assyria. Now, the way this works is... You don't have a peaceful transition of power. America's the only nation in the history of the world that's ever figured that out, right? And it's getting more dicey by the election, let's be honest, okay? So what you have then is when a king dies, he's often murdered, his son takes the throne, but he can't just say, okay, I'm king, I'm going to go back to conquering. He has to actually sort of calm things down. He has to secure his throne, which takes time. Then he can go out and start conquering. So you have this gap. Shalamansar has died. Snacherb has taken a throne. Years later, he is in a place that he can continue the conquering that his father had left off with. So now you have Sennacherib, king of Assyria, coming up against all the fortified cities of Judah. Now notice this. You have Jerusalem there. That's the prize, like Samaria was the prize of Israel. Jerusalem is the prize of Judah. However, he doesn't start by going after Jerusalem. He starts by going after all the fortified cities around Jerusalem. And so if you're Hezekiah, one after another, cities are falling. And they're not just cities. They are fortified cities. The whole point of having these cities is to keep invading armies away from your capital city. One by one, they are falling. And you may find this fascinating. I certainly do. And if you don't find it fascinating, please let me nerd out a little bit. Until the 19th century, the only evidence we had that any of this stuff happened was from the Bible. And as you can imagine, since the Enlightenment, people have been critical of this as historical narrative. We actually have evidence outside the Bible. It doesn't make it true, but it does verify what we find in the Bible. From Sennacherib's uh, own uh, lips, if you will, that these things actually happened. So what we have is known as Sennacherib's Prism. You may find about other names, but it's usually called Sennacherib's Prism. It was found in 1830, and it is Sennacherib telling the story of how he uh, took on King Hezekiah. So we know Hezekiah was a historical person. We know this for multiple reasons. We have bullas, which are basically stamps. Uh, multiple bullas with Hezekiah and his alliance with Egypt. Uh, we have Sennacherib, who we know is a historical person, writing about Judah and Hezekiah, right? These things really happened. Now, in this prism, it's a hexagonal prism describing his assault against Judah, he claims he sieged 46 cities and deported over 200,000 uh, Jews. Now, let's just say those numbers are correct. They're probably a bit fanciful, but no doubt, we, we have no doubt whatsoever. Actually, there's actually a third source written by a Greek historian that we can come to that at, at, at another time. Forgive me, I'm getting nerdy. But, but, but we have sources here saying that Sennacherib is taking one city after another, not merely taking them. He is taking the people like he did with, 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 with the Samaritans, and he is shipping them off. 
And here's Hezekiah sitting on his throne. And he knows he's next. In fact, as part of the assault, Sennacherib sets up his headquarters at a city called Lachish, which is about 28 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He is knocking, knocking, knocking on Jerusalem's door. And he's got a massive army ready to boot. No wonder Hezekiah is nervous and ready to do anything to save his kingdom. Wouldn't you? Do you see the pressure? Now, it's pretty easy to put an egg through a bottle. You know what's also easy? To make water defy gravity. It's actually quite easy. I think think I've got it up here. You know what to do, right? You fill a cup of water all the way as high as you can with water. It's completely full. Take a piece of cardboard, put it over there. Turn it upside down. Hold the cup. And that cardboard will keep the water in there thus defined. Now, you would think you put the cup up, the cardboard and water coming out. No, 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 no. It will hold for a while. See, what happens is the, 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 there's, there's no air pressure in it because it's completely full of water. And the, so, so that seal, the cardboard's right there. So you have all this air pressure now coming up, holding the cardboard there and not letting the water to come through. But you know what will happen? Eventually, that piece of paper, or in this case, cardboard, will eventually keep getting wet. And eventually, that pressure will break through. And you'll have a mess on your hands. That's what pressure does. You can withstand pressure for so long, but eventually, too much and too long... It becomes difficult to withstand it. And that's what Hezekiah does here. For years, he's been seeing the Assyrians coming towards him. And now they are next door to him, and he knows what happens next. So now he's going to do anything he can to save his kingdom. Notice what he does, verse 14. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear the king of Assyria with heart of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Notice how desperate he is getting. Now, what does he mean by saying that he's done wrong? What he means there is that Hezekiah has gone into alliance with the Philistines, with Phoenicia, and with Egypt. The thinking is, is that as individuals, we cannot withstand Assyria. They're too powerful. But by our powers combined, we can do this. This is like the Power Rangers forming up, right? This is like a Thundercats, whoa, getting together, right? This, this is like the Avengers, right? We can take on Thanos if we work together. But now that they are right at their door, Hezekiah is saying, I'm sorry for all of that. If I just give you anything you ask of me, will you leave me alone? That's all Hezekiah wants is to be left alone. And so he has to pay 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold in tribute to the king. Now, I read in one place, don't know if it's true or not, but, but let's just assume it is, just for our own uh, entertainment, that this equals about 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. At this time, it's very possible for what we can tell. Silver was more valuable than gold. Don't know why that is, um, but that's what I read. So it was on the internet, so it has to be true. 
Now, this, of course, was a common means of warding off enemies, right? Why would you destroy a nation that is paying you? And you don't have to do anything. And that is his hope. So how did, where is he going to get this money, right? Where, where is he going to get His economy has been ruined. He's lost 46, possibly 46, upwards of 46, 45 cities. His economy is ruined. He's got 200,000, possibly up to 200,000 Jews who are no longer part of his kingdom. This is going to decimate the economy. So what is he going to do? Look at it there in verse 15. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Seir. Notice the parallelism. Same thing written twice in verses 15 and 16. Now, so notice what he does here. The Babylonians will do this themselves but, uh, later. But here, Hezekiah will take gold from the temple, silver from the temple. Now, the irony is, you want to know how that gold and silver got there? Hezekiah put it there. In his spiritual reforms, he had to renovate the temple. 1 Chronicles 29, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now he is stripping it of its repairs just to pay this debt. So what we get in verse 17 and 18 is that Sennacherib accepts, accepts the ransom, but he still wants to possess Jerusalem. So he sends Rabshakeh, that is a title meaning commander-in-chief of the army, basically. Sends them to negotiate with Hezekiah. The money is good. We want a little more than just money. They meet at a pool there in Jerusalem, which ironically is the site that Isaiah had warned Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, about making an alliance with Assyria. And verses 19 to 25 is the center of this entire chapter. Right here is the most important part. And at this, in, in this passage, the, 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 the commander-in-chief asks one question using one word seven times. The question is, to whom will you put your trust? The word trust is used seven times in these verses. That sounds important. To whom and to where you put your trust. Verse 20, will you trust in your diplomatic skill? Do you think, he says, that mere words are strategy and powerful war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Will you trust in your ability to talk smoothly and to talk yourself out of a situation? Will you trust into your diplomacy? Verse 21, will you trust in your allies? There it is. You, you see it for yourself. Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. You're going to trust in him? He'll betray you the second he has. By the way, Hezekiah is threatening to do that, isn't he? He's already apologized for aligning himself with them. He's under great pressure. If flatter diplomacy won't work, what about allies? Egypt won't save you, he says. Your allies won't help you. By the way, Isaiah, who you can probably tell is a contemporary of Hezekiah, warned Israel about alliance with Egypt. Let me give you, he has two chapters on this. I'll give you one verse. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It's interesting here, you'll find in, in, in this passage, uh, the commander sounds, he echoes the sentiment of Isaiah. You're going to trust in your flattery words? Isaiah says, don't, don't, don't do that. You're going to trust in your allies to go down to Egypt? Isaiah told him, you don't want to do this. Or how about this? Verse 22. 
Are you going to trust in the Lord? I don't have the language here. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying the Jew in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? I think there's mockery here, and I think there is uh, a propaganda going on here. We, if you keep reading, um, all of this is being said in front of uh, like a crowd. And he seems to be saying here, hey guys, hey guys, wasn't everything just going smoothly before Hezekiah did all these spiritual reforms? You had the high places, and your economy was booming. You, you, you didn't even bother going to the temple. And you know what? Your military was strong. Then comes Ahaz's son and undoes everything Ahaz had built. Why? Because he wants you to worship Yahweh, <laughs> some, some god he is. He couldn't protect your fortified cities. You think he's going to protect you now? I think this is a propaganda here that he, he, he's wanting to, to turn the, the crowd against Hezekiah politically and here with him religiously. Verse 23 and verse 24, do you trust your strength? Look at it there. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Did you see, see what he said there? He said, I'll tell you what. Assyria will donate 2,000 horses in your battle against the Assyrians. You can have them. There's a problem there. You ain't got 2,000 men to ride them. And we assume by the language that's exactly what Egypt had promised Judah. We'll give you 2,000 horses. He says, don't even worry about Egypt. We'll give you everything Egypt was going to give you. Could you then stand against the mighty army of Assyria? Are you going to trust in horses? Are you going to trust in chariots? No. Again, these pagan words should be convicting to the average American, including the American evangelical. If we were to look at ourselves in the mirror as a nation and as individuals, even as a church, and ask ourselves to whom we put our trust in. If only I could think of a cultural context where things are a mess here in America. Can you think of one in recent memory? Pandemic with the fear of yet another pandemic. An economy that is already bad more likely about to get far worse. A culture that is eating itself alive. One institution following after another. To whom and to where will you put your trust? Can I have to give you the American answer that has seemed to have worked for us for a long time? We haven't learned our lesson. The political leaders of our party will fix this. How many more generations is it going to take before we realize that's not going to work? Don't worry, we have the greatest military in all the world. If only history had an example of a mighty army falling, or let's say a giant falling to a little man. We can trust in our economy after all. Look, we have everything the world has to offer, we have it right here. I can't imagine a scenario where, let's just say, an international pandemic will shut it all down. 
I can't imagine a scenario where in the 21st century we can't feed our babies. Our economy is too strong for that. We can, we can trust on our ingenuity. It doesn't matter what's thrown at us. We'll make adjustments. We'll figure it out. We can trust in our technology. We can do anything. We, we, we can fight against nature itself, if that's what our feelings want. In our size, in our strength, in our traditions. Surely, two years of COVID has taught us how fragile our world is and how fragile civilization is. If we lose power for 48 hours, you won't recognize this country. To whom will you put your trust in? That's the question. So what he does start in verse 26 is Snackham's representatives, his, his, his chief of staff and general and all that, they then start to intimidate the nation. So it isn't just physical warfare. They're, they're engaging in psychological warfare here. Verse 27, he warns very graphically of famine. You could read it for yourself. Verse 28 and 29, he warns them of certain defeats. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, by the way, that phrase, the great king, king of Assyria, you'll see in Sennacherib's prison. Same language is used there, which is fascinating. It's almost like the Bible is true. Verse 29, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. you will not, he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Notice any warning of defeat. He then warns them against hope, starting in verse 30. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Notice the language. Not thus says the Lord, thus says the king of Assyria. He has placed himself in Assyrian culture as the divine one. Thus says the king of Assyria. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you, notice this language, will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Has anyone read the Bible before? What does that sound like? Who's making this promise? It's the same promise God gave Israel in the wilderness by using Eden language about the promised land. God will, will, will make an oasis out of the wilderness if you will follow me. Now as the Assyrian king is saying, all those traditions are really going to be fulfilled in me. I will take you out of the wilderness. I will bring you into the promised land. And I will give you all your heart's desire. If you don't believe me, I can prove it to you. You're going to get out late anyway, so just you got out early this morning. Deal with it. The language, verse 41, of vine and fig tree. Is clearly uh, Eden and, uh, and, and uh, Promised Land language. Uh, 1 Kings 4, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine, under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. We looked at that a few weeks ago, right? This is the picture that we want of Israel. This, this was the goal. Job chapter 2, verse 22. We looked at Job several years ago, verse by verse. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. 
Micah 4, 3 to 4. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one will make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. It's the language of peace, the language of prosperity. Zechariah 3, 10 is where my mind went. In that day, this is a messianic passage my favorite in all the Old Testament, probably my absolute favorite Old Testament, declare the Lord of hosts. Every one of you, this is a messianic hope looking into the millennium. You will be invite, you will invite your neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That is Edenic language. After all, what was the tree that, that they used to cover their shame? A fig tree. It's the only tree mentioned by name in Eden. And what's the hope here? The vine that is fruitfulness, wine, and fig tree. Here you will have prosperity. And, and, and the Syrian king says, if you're looking for the promised land, don't look to Hezekiah. Look at the great king. Not only that, we can do grain and wine mentioned in verse 32. It's the same thing. Genesis 27, may God give you all the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Numbers 18, 12. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. This is the promise of, of the promised land, Deuteronomy 7. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock, and the land he swore to your father to give you. Notice again what the king is saying here. That promise is not in Jerusalem or Judah. It is in Assyria where I will send you. Finally, Psalm 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abounds. You see what language he's using here? It's not an accident that it's there. One more example. This reference in verse 32, the olive trees and honey. And go back to Deuteronomy 8, 8. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees. Now, where have I read them? And pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. It's the promised land. You see the pressure? You see it there? Well, this king, he's making a lot of good promises, and I really like his campaign manager. Have you seen his commercials? This is incredible. And what we have to give up to him isn't really that much. Does it really matter if we are in Judah or if we are in Assyria so long as I'm happy? We Americans will sell our soul if it means we can be happy. He borrows the language of the divine to sell the people of Israel. He is a snake. He's the serpent. Don't you know? The day you've eaten this fruits, you'll be just like him. You'll be just like God. Well, finally, he warns them against faith. Verse 33. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim, Hena, and Evah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Whom among all the gods of the lands have delivered their, their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You see what he said there? See, at this time, it was believed that nations and gods were tied together. 
If a nation failed, their gods failed them. If a nation triumphs, their god triumphed for them. If you, if the, probably the best example of this is actually Homer's Iliad, the, the, the Trojan battle. So you have Hector and, and Achilles. But what you have in the story, in the background, they spend really, uh, Homer spends more time on the gods fighting than Hector and Achilles. In the American way of doing it, we just want to look at these bare-chested men with muscles fighting. But in the story, it's the gods who are fighting. The Trojan gods versus the Greek gods. That's what you have here. If, if, if Samaria couldn't and their god couldn't uh, fight and defeat the Assyrians, what makes you think yours can? Are you going to trust in faith? With all these threats made, notice what Hezekiah's advisors do. Verse 36. The people were silent and answering him not a word, for the king's command was do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the commander-in-chief. Before they spoke, Hezekiah got the message. To tear one's clothes at this time was to, to, was to lament. It was to, to announce... Um, Bad news? He gets the message. The diplomacy didn't work. The bribes didn't work. What are we going to do now? And that's the end of the story. Let's just pray and go home. It's frustrating end of the chapter, isn't it? Now, remember, the story wasn't written in chapters the way we have it divided in our Bible. But I actually find, especially considering how long we've gone already, I think it's good that we just leave it there. Don't you want to know what happens? Don't you want to know that, you know, Tolkien eagles are going to come and save the day? Gandalf's going to show up with his wand and he's going to fight off the, 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 the orcs? Don't you, don't you want to know something like that? Will Hezekiah surrender? Will he wage war and win like David versus Goliath? Will he wage war and lose? Will he be slaughtered? Will his allies save the day? Will the Assyrians be pushed back? Will Judah be destroyed? The real question in the chapter is to ask yourself, what, what would you do? What would you do? The temptation, especially if we've read the story, and hopefully you have in recent weeks, the temptation is to look at the story and say, well, I know what I would do in that situation. Can I do what I would do? I just trust Jesus. I just trust Jesus. He'd take care of everything. I don't worry about him. Jesus take care of everything. Hezekiah needs to learn. He just needs to trust Jesus. I mean, that's a good Sunday school answer, isn't it? I learned that when I was five. Just trust Jesus. Read your Bible. Pray. Go to church. You ain't got nothing to worry about. Let's be honest, you and me. Is that what we do in our lives? We hear the same threats, we hear the same warnings, and we often make the same compromises as Hezekiah here. Consider pressure of finances. Maybe the family budget is getting tight and you're contemplating shortcuts. Maybe you're panicking about the economy, the rise in inflation, the gas prices, the economic future of your children. Pressure. Pressure of morality. Maybe you feel like Joseph having to run from temptation. But unlike Joseph, you're having to run every day and you're starting to get tired. Wouldn't it be easier just to give in? Just a small compromise. Pressure of faith. Maybe critics are relentless. 
And you're starting to believe them. Maybe they're right, you're starting to think. Maybe all this stuff I've dedicated my life to is wrong in the end. Pressure of health, another diagnosis, more bad news. The bills are piling up, the prayers aren't being answered. Will I ever feel better? Pressures in your marriage, pressures in the culture, pressure of family, pressure of friends, pressure of success, pressure, pressure, pressure. Pressure will lead to compromise, it will lead to temptation, it will lead to sin, foolishness, seduction, apostasy. Hezekiah, give him credit. He held out for 20 long years of pressure. The Assyrians are inching closer, the threats are getting louder, and he held out for 20 years. But eventually, like that cardboard holding water, the pressure is starting to win. In his defense, the average American evangelical would have given in the pressure a lot sooner. Let's be honest. Well, do you want to know how the story ends? Of course you do. I'm going to tell you anyways. In the end, Hezekiah does the unthinkable. He does not give in to pressure. That's why he's one of the good kings. Can I tell you how he defeated the Assyrians? First of all, he trusted in the word of God. Look at 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 5 to 7. Real quickly, 2 Kings 19, 5 to 7. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, there he is. Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord. There it is. What did we just hear in chapter 18? Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. No, 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 no. Thus says the Lord. Will you trust in the word of man? Will you trust in the word of God? Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. He trusts in the word of God. Secondly, he prayed to God. He prayed to God. Look at verse 14 to 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, which he had renovated, remember. He spread it before the Lord. Here's the letters of threat. Here's the warnings. Here's everything I fear. I'm going to lay it right here in front of you. And then you get his prayer starting in verse 15 going all the way down to verse 19. He trusts the Lord. He then prays. Thirdly, he has faith in God. Go down to verse 29 of chapter uh, 19. And this shall be the sign for you this year. Eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruits. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward uh, and bear fruit upward. Notice what he's saying there is that if you are being sieged, you got to ration food. But God says, don't ration food, you'll be fine. Will you live by fear? Will you live by freedom or faith? Finally, he was patient toward God. He was patient toward God. Verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. I can't spend forever on this. I was joking about being here for four hours, and we're at the third hour. So let me just summarize real quick. We know something like this happened in history, which you're not going to get from other sources as I mentioned the angel of the Lord. Um, Heroditus, the Greek historian, says it was a plague, basically a bubonic plague brought about, brought about by mice. 
What you get in Sennacherib's prism is, is that he laid siege of Jerusalem, never took it. It's just the story ends in Sennacherib's prism. He ain't going to talk about how he lost 180,000 men without a single sword being swung. So this something here happened. Here, it's the angel of the Lord. Now, maybe it's mice are the means of God's judgment, but it's still God's judgment nonetheless. Now, what did Hezekiah do in all of this? Absolutely nothing except trust, pray, and wait. I'm willing to bet all of us have had the sensation that when we go underwater, we're swimming. The deeper you go, you get that pressure on your ears. So you got a 10-foot pool, right? And, and you're going to go down and you're going to touch the bottom. You're a little kid, right? You remember the first time? Like, that was weird. Oh, I'm going to do that again, right? That, that the farther you go down, the more pressure you have. And it's, 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 what's causing that is, 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 is that your body is in such a way that it's got pressure going out. And then when you're out here in the air, you got pressure coming in. It's equilibrium. But when you go down into the water, it, all of that changes. So you feel the pressure of your body and, and then the pressure of, of the water. All of that is taking place, much like all those other experiments. Which made me wonder this week, how is it that we cannot build a submarine, as far as I understand, that can touch the bottom of the ocean, but there are fish who seem to be surviving just fine down there? Have you ever wondered that? Now, I am not a biologist, so I don't know what gender is, nor can I answer all your questions about fish, okay? But, but I Googled it, so everything I'm telling you has to be true. So let me tell you some of the things that I have. One, there are some fish who swim both at the heights of the ocean and the depths of the ocean. Some whales, for example, they breathe oxygen, of course, they are mammals, and, and they breathe oxygen. So they have to come up in order to get air, but, but they are designed in such a way their lungs can collapse and they can store oxygen in their bloodstream. So then the pressure on the inside is then uh, figured out. I don't know how it all works with the pressure coming from the water that allows them to swim really deep for food. They then can come back out. And as they start to come out and the pressure lessens, their lungs uncollapse, decollapse. I don't know the term. I'm not a biologist, so I don't even know what a male is anymore. Other fish, however... What there is is there's a molecule that all fish seem to have, or so I think that's what I read, that addresses this issue. Even if you have a fish going out 20 feet, that is uncomfortable for us, very uncomfortable for us. But fish can handle that. You've probably fished for fish at that level, right? Fish the bottom of the lake or whatever it is. They have certain molecules that help them uh, to, to deal with this. I know that's not very detailed, but I, I, I don't like science. However, what I believe I understood is that the higher amount of this molecule, the farther down they can dive, the farther down they can live. Here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. God has designed those fish to withstand the pressure, despite how great it is. So it is that you and I can withstand pressure too. It is by the gospel of Jesus and faith in him, no matter how great the pressure, how deep we may seem like we are sinking, he is the God of the depths that can set us free. What awaits us apart from a great revival unlike anything is more and more pressure.
But I believe God has made us, if we live by faith, to withstand it and to see things unimaginable by the power of God. Let's pray.